Good day. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, I'm Tim Chiang. I'm one of the pastoral workers here at the cathedral. And it's my privilege to be sharing God's Word with you today uh, from, as we into the second week of our Advent series. So before we begin, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know our hearts, that you know our life situations, that you know whatever darkness we may be facing in our lives right now. And we thank you that you have given us your word, your truth, so that we can have hope and live for you. I pray, O oh Lord, that you may speak to your people this day directly, that they may not uh, focus on me, but they may hear directly from you. And I pray that you will guide us by your spirit. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. The passage today will be from Isaiah chapter 9, as we have read from the first seven verses. Um, and what, this, what I would, uh, the angle I'll take on this passage today is really on the dark night of the soul. It can be said that there are two kinds of people in this world. The first kind are those who know intimately the dark night of the soul, that situation where they're facing hopelessness and despair that doesn't seem to end. And the second kind of people are those who just haven't lived long enough yet. You see, all of us face dark times, uh, although some of us more than others, yes? And there's also a general sense in which all of us, we're living under a dark cloud of uncertainty as to yet another new variant, uh, variant of the virus will bring. Some of us may be going through financial turmoil and financial uncertainty. Others might be despairing of their, that their health is no longer what it was, what it used to be. Or yet others may be walking through the darkest cloud of grieving a loved one. And even if all this doesn't apply to anyone, which I doubt it doesn't, uh, the sobering reality is that none of us are immune to our world being turned upside down with just a single phone call. Because that's the broken world that we live in. And yet a common feature of this night, of nights, metaphorical or otherwise, is that they eventually come to an end when the morning comes, yes? And that is why our passage today in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 is so frequently read during this season of Advent because it, promised, it tells us that God promises to end our darkness with His light. And you can follow my sermon outline uh, in the outline provided. Uh, and you can see that it's in three parts. The first part uh, is the promise of the light in verses 1 to 2. The second section is the effects of that light in verses 3 to 5. And last but not least, the identity of that light in verses 6 to 7. So, reading the first two verses. Before we read the first two verses, sorry, um, we must know the setting, how these verses came about. What was going on in Isaiah's world and he was writing that, right? So what was happening when Isaiah was penning these words was that there was a looming threat of an army called Assyria coming from the north, and uh, he's writing in Jerusalem, which is fairly south. Now, here is where the geography of Malaysia helps us, okay? Because the geography of Israel is kind of like the geography of Peninsular Malaysia. Apologies to those of you who, that's not your strong subject, but let me, uh, allow me uh, to describe it very simply. Put it simply put, the land of Israel is just a narrow strip of land. On the west is the ocean, on the east is a desert, so it's really just north and south. Kind of like Peninsular Malaysia, very narrow strip of land, right? 
And imagine that Jerusalem is the capital, a bit south, like KL in the peninsula, it's a bit south. Yeah? So what happens? Can you imagine if an invading army comes through the north, comes through the land route of Thailand and comes down and, and, and surrounds KL, all right? What do you think that means for the further north towns of like Ipoh and Penang? Do you think they're untouched? No, right? Um, necessarily, they have been defeated in order to proceed to KL, right? And putting that onto our passage today, Isaiah writing in Jerusalem is talking about towns further north, Naphtali, Zebulun, right? That will be ravaged by the coming Assyrian army. Uh, later, later on in Isaiah, the Assyrian army will surround Jerusalem. But that's another story for another day. And we can see hints of this devastation by this Assyrian army in the previous verse, in the previous chapter, in chapter 8, verse 22. They will look on the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. If you read a bit further up in chapter 8, God explains it's because of the necromancers, the mediums, the people who turn to evil, that he is bringing this judgment upon the land of Israel. And this, the, the, the judgment is described as deep darkness. And that's why we come to verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the later time, he made glorious the way of the sea. Now, let me unpack this a bit. You see, the contempt, on one hand, the former contempt, and the later glory, in Hebrew, is a paired word together. That contempt has the idea of um, lightness, that you don't care about it, right? Of disdain, disregard. That's the former. And in the latter, glory has the idea of significance, that you pay attention to it that you give uh, your, your, your attention and, 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 and uh, you know, care to it, of significance to it, that there's a reversal then, right, of what happened before and what will come later. So if what was before was the devastation of the Assyrian army, what comes later is hope and light and life. And that's what we see, that's darkness, yes? And that's what we see in verse 2, that the people who walked in great darkness have seen a great light. Verse 2 shows that as clearly as darkness is chased away by the light, so too this land of deep darkness. And literally, it is the land of the shadow of death. So you can imagine your situation, which seems so hopeless, which you can't see, as if the night will never end. That is what the Bible is talking about, a metaphorical night of the soul. And it's an imagery of abandonment, loneliness, despair. And like I said earlier, the suffering of the consequences of sin and fallenness of this fallen world all around us and sometimes within us as well. But the hope is that in that darkness, a great light has shone. And that's where we come to the light. What is God promising here? God is promising a light that will end our darkest night. And as we've read from the Gospel of Matthew earlier, that this promised light is none other than Jesus. And that this coming ministry, we read, is in this very area that was devastated, in the northern regions of Galilee, right? 
And Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Thus, we see that Jesus' coming was to bring an end to our darkness. And we've already noted at length about what it means and the effects of darkness. But what does the light bring? How does it chase away the darkness? In what way? How does it look like right, to finally have no darkness anymore? And that's what we see in our second part, the effects of the light in verses 3 to 5. So first, the first effect here is that he says, you have multiplied the nation. So let me unpack this a bit. You see, to us in English, multiply the nation, uh, okay lah, right? It's like, okay, maybe make it a bit more. But there's more meaning in the Hebrew, which is the same word of abundance, Rav, in Hebrew, is the same conversion of the name of Abram to Abraham. Which those of you, if you know, if you've been to uh, Kish Church, you know that it's a conversion of the name of Abram from great father to the father of many nations. And we're recalled to the promise that God will bless all the families on earth through Abraham in Genesis 12 verse 3. And we know that this promise is fulfilled in the greatest descendant of Abraham, in Jesus. When he became, uh, he drew all nations, all peoples, all of us seated here today, he made it possible for us to come to him and be children of Abraham, no matter our background, no matter where we come from, even no matter what we've done, that we can come to Jesus and be God's people under him. And that this is a sign of abundance. And this abundance is described in two ways, right? In joy, in increased joy in two ways. The first um, is that the joy at harvest. Now this, bear in mind, this was an agricultural society. What does harvest mean? Harvest just means uh, the, the, they have what they need. They have sufficient providence. They have blessing, right? And that this is the joy at the harvest. It shows that God will meet our needs. The God who meets our needs and meets even beyond our needs as we will explore in late other, other Advent passages later. That meeting the deepest longing of our souls, that is true blessedness. It is not a temporary solving of a problem today that will exist again tomorrow. No, it is a true meeting of the greatest needs that we need in our soul. And the second way of expressing joy is that of spoils. Um, it doesn't mean that food goes to spoil, right? This is talking about the, the winnings after a battle that you conquer an enemy and you take all of their possessions and you increase. And this is explained a bit later in the next verse. On the day of Midian. It's a military victory, right? What happens in verse 4? The yoke, the staff, and the rod of the oppressor will be broken as on the day of Midian. So what's being referred to here? Why suddenly, like, you know, very random, Midian comes in, right? And it's actually referring to another story in the Bible of a, of a man named Gideon, which defeated Midian in this very same region in the north. You can read it in Judges chapter 7. What happened in the battle of Gideon? It was a battle where God gave the victory to Gideon and his 300 men. And the Midian, Midianite army, which was the, that time the oppressors of Israel, was described as uncountable. They have an uncountable um, uh, army, even an uncountable number of camels, as much as sand on the seashore. And yet, 300 men prevailed against 
not just uh, an uncountable army, but an entrenched army, right? And for those military experts in the crowd, you will know that there is no human possible way that that overwhelming odds could be achieved, except by God alone. So the point here is that this victory, this day of Midian, this breaking of oppression, is something that only God can do. The victory that only God will bring about and it's only possible because of him. And that this victory is a lasting victory. As you read in the next verse, every boot of the trampling water, warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And how is this the completeness of this victory? It's because, can you imagine? If in, in our modern context, it's like, you know, there's no more need for war. So all the guns are just being melted down for scrap metal. There's no need for guns anymore. There's no need for weapons anymore, right? There's no need for tanks anymore. There's no war. This is the idea here, right? That there's no nothing. There's nothing. Uh, the, the the things that belong to and the products of the time of war. There's nothing good for it except to be burned. And in summary, bringing it back to the idea of light and darkness is that Jesus' light will end every tangible presence of darkness, right? And how does he do this? Because we know later on in the Bible story, what happens to Jesus is that on the cross, we see the true darkest night of human evil, where Jesus, the innocent son of God, the light of the world, bore the full extent of all our darkness, the consequences of our darkness. He intimately experienced the deepest possible sorrow, the deepest loss, the deepest pain in himself, even though he didn't have to, right? so that he will know what we are going through. He was utterly abandoned and rejected at the cross when he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never be that abandoned that way. He took on our shame, the shamefulness of our brokenness. He took that on himself. And he gave us his blamelessness in exchange. That all the honour that was due to him, he gave to us. And just like Gideon in that day broke the oppression of the Midianites once and for all, we see that Jesus broke the oppression of sin and of death that all of us find ourselves under by conquering victoriously in his resurrection. And that all of us in him will receive that new, incorruptible, glorious body. Now, how is Jesus able to do this? Why is this amazing victory possible. And the clue is in the next few verses in our last section for today. In the last two verses, we say, uh, Isaiah says that the reason for this great military victory, as we have outlined in verses 3 to 5, is a child. A child will be born. Now, we already know that it is Jesus. Obviously, that's why we're reading it during Advent, right? But and we've seen how Jesus accomplished this. But the reason he's able to do this is because of who he is as described in these next two verses. So let's walk through it a bit. There's quite a lot here. And if I'm honest, um, if you've given me just a sermon on this, these two verses, I could do, you know, I feel like I could preach a, a few series on it. But so I'll try to be brief, okay? Forgive me if I go a bit long. <laughs> but yes, very briefly, what are the descriptions here? First and foremost, the government will be on his shoulders. He will be a ruler. Okay? He will be a ruler. And not just an administrator, but a, 
uh, a conqueror, his dominion, right? And we see wonderful counsellor. And there is a case to be made that it could be two separate words. So I'll treat them separately under one title, if that makes sense. The first word, wonderful, sometimes in Malaysians we go like, wonderful, right? But it doesn't capture the essence of this word. It's trying to tell us that it's supernatural. Whenever this word was used in the Old Testament, it has to do related to the God's supernatural, miraculous works. That this is no ordinary, like human-level wonderful, right? The best word that the English translators could come up with is wonderful, right? That he's divine, he's supernatural, and that he's a counsellor, he's wise, he gives advice. You can put two, the two together, right? That he's a, that a divine counsellor, so to speak, with wisdom. The next is mighty God, El Gibor, is a very common uh, title for God in the Old, in the Old Testament. Mighty God, uh, a warrior God in a sense, right? Uh, everlasting Father. There's a fatherly care element of it, and there's a lasting element to it. Aviad is just literally a father forever. His fatherly care will never end. That he will never def be deficient, he will never lack, he will never stop. He will always be there, right? And last but not least, Prince of Peace. And please humor me a bit to explain a bit more. Because the English word peace just means cessation of hostilities. No more fighting, that's all, right? But there's a deeper meaning behind here. Shalom, as you know what peace means, has a deeper meaning of completeness, wholeness, wellness, harmony, right? That everything is as it should be. Can you imagine that, right? When we wish each other... Um, shalom, technically what we're wishing is not that you, you don't argue with your friends and loved ones at family gatherings, but rather that you have everything that you need, that you'll be complete and well, and that the prince of peace, the word prince here is not like how we use like a prince is the son of a king, but the word prince here is used as an administrator, the person who gives and, and distributes this peace. Uh, another word for prince, or uh, you can think of it, is like governor or administrator or captain even, depending on the context. And here, the prince of Shalom is the source. He's the one who would order and make sure that God's peace is in this world. And this highlighted in verse 7, right? The kingdom, his kingdom. How is his kingdom described in verse 7? The increase of his governance and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it. We see here that, like I said, it's not just lasting, but it's not static. It will grow. Yeah? And that is tying back to the promises of God to David. As uh, For those of us who have been following uh, from our series in 1 Samuel, we have seen that David is God's chosen king. Right? And here, hundreds of years later after David, God is promising to fulfill that promise in Jesus. And what is his kingdom like? With justice and righteousness. Right? A kingdom of righteousness. There, where everyone will do what is right. Where everything, where with justice, is more than equality. It's the fact that what is, as it should be, as it rightfully should be. And last but not least, 
we have a guarantee here that the zeal of the Lord will do this, or the Lord of hosts will do this. Uh, the, the strong desire, the passionate commitment of the Almighty God Himself. The Lord of hosts is literally the Lord, the God of angel armies. Host is like the army, right? The Lord of heaven's armies desire is to bring this about. That God promises to end our darkness with His light. And we have implications for us today then. So today, if you're here and you do not know what it means to have Jesus as your Lord, we're so glad that you're here tuning in with us online or physically here. But if I may ask, if you are still in darkness, if you're still facing darkness in your life, would you accept His light into your life? That He can meet your needs, that He can be for you what you can't be for yourself. And if you have more questions about this, uh, we are more than glad for you to fill out a connection card and, and get in touch with uh, one, of our, one of our team. But for those of us who have accepted His light, we are still living in a world full of darkness, and that is true. Right? We still face grief, we still face sufferings, and the nights still seem long. But the hope is that we are not ended by that darkness. We are not defined by that darkness. So we don't lose hope. But we also do not, must not forget that as we have this light, that we have this hope, that this world needs Jesus' light. And this Advent season is a, is a time for us to remember that even as Jesus said, I am the light of the world, in a similar passage in Matthew, he says, you are the light of this world. Shine your light before men. Brothers and sisters, we remember that he calls us to be, that we are called to be his light, carrying his hope in this world where we are. And that this Advent season, there are many opportunities, such as uh, the Christmas with us event, where we can uh, share the gospel, have a chance to share the gospel with our closest friends and families. Let us always be doing so, not just in Advent, but every day of our lives. Come, let us close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the reminder of this season of Advent, of the hope that you've given us, of the, the amazing characteristics of how it mean, what it means to walk in the light, to have hope, to not despair, to have the sure promise from you, Lord, that one day the night will end, even if we don't see it now. I thank you, Lord, for your, the victory that you give us in Christ. And I pray and ask, O oh Lord, that you would um, strengthen all of us, give us the boldness to be living for you, and to be proclaiming your hope to a dying world that needs it so desperately. Help us to see with your eyes and love with your heart, and help us always to be walking in your light according to your word. We pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.